1: Hi hey there. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had the great pleasure of talking with Susan Huang about her brand new book that's hot off the presses called Picturing the True Form, Taoist Visual Culture in Traditional China. And that just came out in 2012 with the Harvard University Asia Center. Now, this is a book on that right off the bat is gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's full of images that range across a wide variety of media, And it makes just an immensely pleasurable read, uh, for that reason, among others. Because the book is doing a kind of work that is explicitly arguing for understanding images, the production and use of images in a cultural context, by looking at a wide range of media, it's an extraordinarily important and very useful intervention um, in understanding images, broadly speaking, in what we might call traditional China. Um, this is a book that's going to be a reference for many of us for many, many, many years to come. It's going to be a classic work. And one of the reasons for that is precisely the fact that it speaks to so many different fields um, by choosing a, but the author having chosen a topic that's of extraordinarily wide relevance. In the course of this book, Susan Huang talks about a very particular uh, religious and cultural context, and that is roughly 10th to 13th century China. But she's giving us a way to think about images beyond the simple figurative drawing on a paper, on a piece of paper or figure on a painting, and that includes images that are invisible, images that are ephemeral, images that are very closely linked with what we might consider to be writing. It's a very rich study. Um, We talked about a lot of really interesting parts of it and I hope you will enjoy. I certainly did. Hi Susan. Hi Carla. We're here today to talk with Susan Huang about her new book, her really beautiful, just very gorgeous new book, Picturing the True Form, Taoist Visual Culture in Traditional China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Susan, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today.
0: Oh, thank you so much for inviting
1: me. Of course. So, Susan, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you to um, Chinese art history and, and what brought you to this topic of Taoist images in particular?
0: Sure. Well, I grew up in Taiwan, um, and uh, in college, I was actually an English major. Um, I only began uh, to study Chinese art history in graduate school. So what really brought me to the field is uh, a very important mentor, uh, Professor Shi Shou Tian, who I met in the MA program when I studied at uh, National Taiwan University. He was the person who really taught me how to look at Chinese paintings and uh, how to contextualize art in history. Um, He was also the key person who really encouraged me um, to study Taoist painting based on my personal interest at that time. So under his supervision, I wrote a, a master's thesis on the 14th century Taoist wall painting uh, from the Taoist temple, Yongle Gong, in Shanxi. And, uh, in order to get a better training in Taoism, uh, Professor Shi recommended me to take a Chinese religion class, uh, with Paul Katz. Who at that time already worked at Academia Sinica and had just published some of the most fascinating studies on the Yongle Gong murals. Although he uh, focused on the hagiography of Lu mm-hmm. Dongbin, uh, my master thesis has a very different focus. I was most interested in how these uh, Taoist images were related to the broader professional workshop practice in the rural northern China. Um, So this is also a study that uh, reflects my early interest in doing interdisciplinary research. Um, during that period, I also was very fortunate enough to study Buddhist art uh, with Professor Li Yu-Ming, uh, who is also a research curator at the National Palace Museum in Taipei. And under her guidance, I uh, uh, get to know the scholarship of uh, early Buddhist art, especially Dunhuang art. And after graduating from my MA program in Taiwan, um I was fortunate enough to receive a government scholarship in Taiwan to study abroad. Um and I was luckily accepted by Yale uh, to work under um, Richard Bornhart, uh the authority of Chinese painting at that time. Um at Yale, I also continue my study of Chinese religions with uh Valerie Henson, and I explore uh, Japanese art with Professor Mimi Yenpu Sawang. Um, I wanted to to do to continue my study on uh, Taoist art. So uh, in 1997, I went to Boston to see a show on Chinese painting, and there I found my dissertation topic, which is a set of fantastic um, Taoist paintings uh, depicting the bureaucratic gods of heaven, earth, and water. Um, And so that that formed the basic uh, topic of my dissertation. Um, In my dissertation, I uh, spent a lot of time uh, looking at the details of the painting, trying to make sense of it in the the place of history of art. So I date the paintings to um, the 12th century, and I argue that it uh, was a rare example of the Southern Song uh, Imperial Commission. In uh, the later part of the dissertation, I also uh, touch upon the issue of how religious paintings could be used in uh, Taoist ritual in Song China. So that's pretty much my background um, before I wrote this book. Now, you
1: mentioned, um, you've mentioned just now, and you also mentioned at the beginning of the book that this book um, did come from originally dissertation work or your work um, as a phd student and uh, i'm assuming it it transformed from one to the other so can you talk um, a little bit about that transformation were there any major changes were there any um, major issues uh, that you deal with here that weren't in the dissertation what was that process like for you
0: well, you know, I, uh, um, finished my dissertation in 2002 and this book, uh, was out just now in 2012. So we are basically talking about a 10 years transformation. Uh, this is uh, for me, uh, the most critical journey I've taken, uh, in my scholarly life. Um, as a scholar. And um, I have to say that my book is not a revision of the uh, dissertation. Uh, It really reflects uh, the interdisciplinary research that I developed uh, after uh, I got my PhD. So uh, there are several ways to look at this transformation. Basically, I think they are very different in terms of the study questions, uh, in terms of the primary sources, in terms of the methodology, and in terms of the intended audience. Um, Speaking of the study questions, I think my uh, dissertation, of course, dissertation is written for your advisor and a group of committee members. Um, So it's very art history based. And uh, also I mentioned that uh, I, tr- I dealt with problematic paintings. So dating the painting and looking at the style of the painting uh, was the pressing issue for me in my dissertation. Um, this book is not only an art history book. It uh, um, really aims to talk to everyone who is interested in Chinese culture. So um, it uh, deals with more broadly this issue of what Taoist visual culture is and so in terms of in order to answer uh, answer this uh, larger question uh, i have to use a new set of uh, primary sources Uh, the most uh, crucial uh, addition to this book uh, in terms of uh, the primary source is the Taoist canon uh, which is a monstrous compilation of uh, Taoist texts Compiled under the Ming imperial commission uh, uh, patronage in 1445, and uh, in it it contains nearly uh, 1,500 uh, texts, and a lot of them uh, could be dated to Song or pre-Song, and and so um, you know that that forms the major database that I draw my uh, evidence from. Uh, In terms of methodology, as I said, the dissertation is uh, heavily art history based. But uh, for this book, I am tackling uh, all sorts of questions um, that may require other disciplines to help. Um, And uh, most importantly, are the methodologies used uh, in the religious studies and also cultural history study. Um, In terms of the intended audience, I think that I hope that this book will not only uh, address to our um, history readers but also address to people interested in Chinese religions and Taoism in particular. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much. Now, you've already actually mentioned a couple of the things that um, I'm I'm delighted you've mentioned them because these are things that are very striking about the book and that I wanted to sort of ask you to speak a little bit to anyway. One of the things um, brings us really into the body of the book. Now, the book indicates or investigates the visual culture of what you call religious Taoism, focusing, as you mentioned, on the 10th through 13th centuries, but really incorporating material and talking about phenomena that are from earlier and from later. Right. Now, one of the um, really wonderful and really striking things about the study is exactly this transdisciplinarity and this kind of multimedia approach that you're taking to um, incorporating lots of different kinds of images and objects and materials into this very comprehensive and synthetic account. Um, the, your use, especially for um, a historian, the use of the Dao Zang or the Daoist canon um, is, is wonderful in here, and it's very, very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about, um, especially since that you, you mentioned that that came into the study after, or maybe primarily after, um, the phase of this project that began its life uh, in graduate work? Right um, that came out after, so can you talk a little bit about the challenges of using that as a source? did you were there any kinds of issues involved there with using a 15th century compilation oh. um, mm-hmm. to talk about a uh, song? And yep. earlier materials. Did that come up for you at all? Were there any issues where you um, had any trouble dating those images uh, to earlier than the 15th century or so on and so forth? So basically the, um, the set of questions is, right. can you talk about that as a source and, and what was that like for you?
0: Yeah, that is a very good question and very important one. So thank you for addressing that uh, at the beginning. I think the Taoist canon is is a very daunting uh, pool of primary sources and Uh, Since the 1970s, um, you know, a lot of Taoist scholars have been working together trying to sort out uh, the dating issues and the, you know, the content issues of um, these texts. I am really fortunate uh, to be born in this moment uh, when... Christopher Schieper and uh, Franciscus Verulam just published uh, these three volumes, monumental research on the Taoist canon in 2004. And uh, what they did is... uh, This is a project that that, uh, started in the 1970s, and I know that some of my Taoist teachers, when they were writing their dissertation in the 80s, they were already hoping that they could uh, take advantage of this scholarly work. Uh, However, the, the book... Uh, did not publish until 2004. So that says about how difficult it was to get into the details of uh, the Taoist canon. Um, so the uh, advantage of having these, uh, three volume, um, Daozang Tongkao uh, edited by, uh, Shipper and Verilon is that it at least, uh, provide, uh, a, a kind of systematic framework, um, uh, for us to, uh, better Uh, the text Uh, it's very challenging to use a 15th century compilation to talk about um, uh, pre-15th century uh, stuff so how are we going to go about that well before we have better sources to address the Song Taoist visual culture uh, that that unfortunately is still something I have to uh, you know uh, take advantage with So the solution is Uh, to use a lot more comparative materials outside the Taoist canons. So for example, when I was talking about certain images or certain issues uh, derived from the Taoist canon, uh, the text that I think could be traceable to the song or pre-song, I try to look at archeological materials or other visual sources that are comparable to uh, the sources that I use in the Taoist canon and could be more firmly uh, dated or uh, contextualized in the medieval or song context.
1: Great. Thank you so much. That's very helpful. I mean, I think very reasonable and then and very wise. And I, and I should say this, um, you're using all these different kinds of materials is actually one of the very exciting things about the book. And it's one of the things that makes the book, um, I think, speak to a wide range of disciplines. So, Good job. Good job on that. Um, so let's get talk about a little bit about the structure of the book as we get into the chapters. The book is divided into two sections, inner chapters and outer chapters, divided, sort of loosely speaking, to esoteric and exoteric realms of knowledge, respectively. Can you talk about that? How did you decide to structure the book in that way, and in what way is that um, a crucial part of what you're
0: arguing in the book, if it is? Right. Um, you know, thank you for this question. I think that is another very important decision that I have to make. Uh, and that is how do I put all these very complex ideas into a book length of uh, uh, production? And uh, I was very impressed with... Um, um, this idea of inner versus outer, as reflected in the categorization of Taoist texts themselves, um, and this this idea uh, could be uh, evident in uh, the extant works such as *Bao Pu Zi*. It has inner chapter nei pian and outer chapter wai pian the other example is the scripture of the yellow court wang ting jing it also had the inner chapter and the outer chapter and the 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 how uh these are divided, uh speak to different audience. The Napian or the inner chapter is supposed for uh more exclusive internal circulation of those uh, ordained uh, disciples. Whereas the outer chapter or the YPN uh, are really meant for more general and public circulation. And uh you know, uh, Christopher uh, Schipper and, uh, Francisca Verland, when they, uh, published, uh, Daozang Tongkao, the 2004 publication that I mentioned, uh, they took this concept into serious, serious plate. And they actually, uh, uh, lay out uh, Taoist texts from Taoist canon in terms of internal circulation versus general circulation and that for me is very very inspiring um so basically, I think that uh, my division of uh, the chapters into these two categories has something to do with the tradition of how Taoist knowledge was spread. Um, but this is not to say that there is no overlap. This is not to say that uh, whatever I put within these two categories are uh uh you know, are, are in a in, uh, true dichotomy. Uh, on the contrary, um, Taoism is a very fluid idea. And uh, also there is a lot of corresponding microcosm versus uh, macrocosm, inner mirroring the outer. So, you know, uh, in this book, I, I try my best to echo this. Um, so whatever I um, discuss in the first part uh, when I see fit in the second part I will brought it up again
1: Now each one of the chapters that is nestled within one of these two parts deals with a particular case study or set of set of case studies to look at um, a Particular phenomena that are of import to this general set of issues. But throughout all of the chapters, there are three kinds of images. Um, that you bring out the importance of that may not be what um, readers or listeners immediately think of when they think of images. These are images that aren't reducible to the kind of picture on the wall or you know drawing on the piece of paper of a fish or a bird or so uh, or, or what have you. These are images that really kind of help us stretch. Even outside of the context of Taoist imagery, they help us as readers stretch our notion of what an image is and what it could be. So I I want to ask you if you wouldn't mind, because Mm -hmm. this is so central to so much of what the book does, um, to Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about these three kinds of images. So the first kind of image is what you call an aniconic image. Mm -hmm. What is an aniconic image and and how is that important
0: to uh, understanding Taoist visuality? Okay. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that too. I think these are, these three kinds for me are very, very important. And uh, I probably don't, because of the way that I structure um, the book, uh, I do not highlight these terms in the title of the chapter, but I probably, this is something that I, actually plan to work on my um, next project related to Taoist art. Um, But on Iconic, I think this is actually the kind of imagery that I think uh, Mark the most significant contribution Taoism had to Chinese visual culture. And I mean, uh, I use uniconic literally and not interpretively. Um, so basically, the uniconic refers to um, those images that are not figurative icons, which are usually assumed to be the core of Chinese religious art and especially Buddhist art. Um, so what I'm talking about here is really to um, draw my reader apart from the mainstream of Buddhist art and to look at something different.
1: Great. So an iconic images. When you talk about these in the book, and, and they, they come up at several points in the book, you also mention the importance of writing. Yes. To these, can you talk a little bit about that? How is writing important to these an iconic images?
0: Well, I think that maybe we should ask, why is uniconic so big in Taoism or Taoist visual culture? What is the strategy? What is the advantage of being uniconic? And for me, I am I, just about to uh, gradually understand. So this is uh, a, a kind of like, you know, um, progress report. Um, I think that um, For an uniconic image, uh, it gives the freedom to this sense of transformation. And this leads to the other key concept underlying the book, which is the true form or zhen Uh, true form is also a very uh, ambiguous, ambiguous term. And, uh, you know, I was very frustrated when I first go through all the researches in the Taoist canon and the Taoist literature, trying to kind of nail down what exactly are these terms, especially the truth form. Uh but the answer I think is a reasonable one, and that is um Taoists intentionally make it ambiguous and unpredictable, because uh it, it you know it this um uh, visual forms of iconic elements and this uh, literary reference to the truth form or it evoke a kind of changing transforming imagery of Taoism, uh, which they claim is the true nature of things and so uh, to to use to, in order to convey what is true what is underlying what is underneath uh, uh, what is more visible? Uh, I think an iconic approach is very forceful because it, uh, it gives, uh, the, uh, the maker of the symbols this liberty of including writing and other all sorts of miscellaneous abstract forms, uh, into consideration.
1: And there's actually an entire chapter of the book, and we'll talk about this a little bit, it yeah. looks at this notion of true form as sort of some original shape um, that something mm-hmm. had as part of the Tao, right? This sort of inner, invisible, or formless mm-hmm. quality of an entity, as you put it here, in contrast to the outer, mm-hmm. or visible, or concrete, and this idea of an aniconic mode of imagery that incorporates um, diagrams and charts and other kinds of elements, but explicitly resists a simplistic figurative Mm -hmm. representation is is very interesting in that kind Mm-hmm. Okay, so if that's one of the major types of images that the book um, highlights, another one is images that are immaterial or invisible, so invisible images. Um, this is also very striking. Can you talk about that as uh, yeah. and its importance to Taoist imagery?
0: yeah, yeah, well, I think that um, you know immaterial uh, image is especially important to highlight in this uh, art history study, because uh, our historians are talking about material culture study. And it seems that, you know, we only study anything that is materialized. Um, however, recently, uh, a religious art historian, David Morgan, who is not working on the Chinese uh, topic, I think that he and a group of scholars uh, you know, uh, try to, uh, reconceptualize, uh, the study of religious visual culture. And he pointed out that, uh, it's equally important to study the immaterial side of religious visual culture because it's so closely related to what is materialized. And I think this is especially true, uh, in the case of Taoism, uh, especially when we talk about all these uh, mental images uh, the, uh, that occurred in uh, the adept's visualization—you um, know—all these images uh, only stay in the mind, and so what we. Analyze uh, as illustrations from the meditation, uh, meditative uh, manual, are just the visual aids for the adepts to, uh, to, to better understand what it is and where it is in their visualization practice. So when we talk about immaterial, it really uh, linked to this mental practice. Thank you.
1: And so if we have aniconic images, um, which are perhaps represented by these true form charts and incorporate elements we might otherwise think of as writing, and then we have invisible images or immaterial images, an example of which, as you mentioned, is something like a sort of mental image that's conjured in the mind of an adept. The third kind of imagery that's very striking here um, is what you call an ephemeral image. What's an ephemeral image and what might be an example of that in the context of? Of this mm-hmm. larger study of Dallas history.
0: Well. Ephemeral evokes this uh, idea of fleeting. You know, it, it only exists one time or shortly in a brief moment. And so I'm really talking about something uh, including the ritual space. The Taoist ritual space is very portable. You know, as long as you have an incense burner, you you light up the incense and you create a certain a sacred space. But this space will be immediately uh, immediately uh, dismantled as soon as the ritual is over. So space itself is uh, ephemeral. Also, the objects made for uh, ritual functions are often ephemeral. Um, what, what is so interesting from this uh, research is that I realized how uh, important paper Uh, this material, paper, played in Taoist materiality. And uh, the use of paper in a lot of Taoist uh, objects, sculptures, or uh, documents sent to God, it it has a meaning. There's a a reason why uh, uh, the Taoists favor paper. And I think my interpretation is that, one, uh, it is... uh, It's easy to transform. Um, At the end of the ritual, all these paper materials are meant to be burned as a symbolic token of uh, transforming the information to the other world. Um, So ritual object itself uh, could be ephemeral. But what about ritual performance? Um, you know, this goes back to David Morgan and, uh, S. Blant played their theory of religious visual culture, uh, in considering, uh, the transmediary, uh, um, subject in the study. Uh, ritual performance itself is fleeting. It's a fleeting spectacle. And it's, it's dynamic quality, uh, has something to do with the core of Taoist visuality. Um, so all of this go back to this key word, um, true form, which has, which implies transforming, you know, throughout uh, different media, throughout different realms of the world, throughout different stages of cultivation.
1: So if we can speak, um, as we move into this, the material of the chapters, let's stay on this idea of ephemerality for a moment, um, if, you, okay. if you don't mind. Yeah. This is really striking, and I'm sure anybody... Um, who's going to read the book or listen to us talking about the book right now, um, Not maybe not anybody, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if listeners and readers might be struck by not only the opportunities of looking at ephemeral images, including performances or including paper objects that are um, meant to be burned at the end of a ritual, It's um, not just an opportunity but also as a particular set of challenges. Um, can you talk a little bit about those challenges? Okay, what for you have been the challenges of talking about ephemeral images, especially in the context of 10th to 13th century um, cultural uh, cultural practices.
0: Sure, sure. Well, you know, uh, because m- most uh, historians study the hard materials that uh, survive. Um, and for, um, for ages, our uh, historians also think so we uh, study only what is extent. uh we reach conclusion based on what is uh available right now so there is a practical challenge to study what does not uh, what what was no longer exists uh what was no longer here but existed one time before um so um i have to be a little bit creative in using uh study materials. And, uh, I think, uh, what is wonderful about the Taoist canon is that in Song dynasty, especially, uh, around 13th century, there are several, uh, monumental liturgical, uh, manuals compiled, uh, in China. And, uh, these liturgical manuals all have, a uh, rich, uh, repository of, uh, ritual objects. And, uh, um, it is not to say that we can, we can uh just uh, be very sure to claim that well what we see uh as the samples of ritual objects illustrated in the Taoist canons of those uh 13th century manuals are those actual objects uh used by people at that time but at least they gave us a kind of uh uh, leeway, uh, give us a glimpse of what might be like. Also, to study performance, uh, it's equally, uh, difficult, if not more. Um, you know, we can study what has been recorded as the proper ritual and try to imagine the actions, the sequence, and the dramatic, uh, performance at that time. But most importantly, uh, I think that, uh, um, historians would benefit from the ethnographical studies of the contemporary field work done by uh, many scholars, um, John Logaway, to name a few. Um, so this is the way that I um, handle uh, that I address the question.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Susan. Now as we get into the book, um, part one looks at, as we've mentioned, inner or esoteric Taoist images associated with practices like meditation, visualization, and breathing practices. So the first chapter looks at how Taoist perceptions of the body in the cosmos unfolded over time. and you focus this chapter on four types of images: body gods, Imaginary Journeys to the Stars, what we might call grotesque spirits and body worms, which are super, super cool and sort of worth the price of admission just for just for that discussion. And also, trans- transformation of the body through internal alchemy. Um, if you would, could you talk about one or more of these types of images and say a little bit about sort of what they are and um, how an adapter or a practitioner would have used these images in the course of practice?
0: Sure. Um, I uh, chose to talk about this at the beginning of the book because I also think it makes sense that Taoist history of mi- images began with this group. Um, and, you know, uh, this could be traced back to the Han Dynasty or to the rec- uh, rec- records uh, uh, in Taiping Jing, one of the earliest Taoist texts about how adept, uh used images to meditate in private um, and the other key issue that I think, um, you know, is brought up, uh, by these materials here, uh, that, that would maintain, uh, important throughout the book is this correspondence e- uh, theory that sees the self uh, you know, ourselves and the universe as a kind of uh, correspondence, uh, a mirroring effect of microcosm versus macrocosm. Um, and that is why, you know, I think that is important to talk about body and cosmos in chapter one. Um, for me, um, I think some of the images are really fascinating to study um, body gods. This concept of body gods and body worms are very unique in Taoism and you do not find it in uh, Buddhism, for example. So um, that uh, in itself already highlights uh, the special quality of Taoist visual culture. Um, I, I agree with you. I think that the body worms are very cool um, you know, uh, invention of Taoist symbols. And, uh, we were actually, we were, um, talking about, um, something that looked abnormal, uh, something like, you know, uh, a leg that form, uh, the entire body. Um, so, uh, and, uh, in Dunhuang manuscript in, you know, uh, recent discovery of Song tombs, we found comparable examples of ceramic figurines, uh, you know, we say it is figurine, but it's actually these kind of uh, worms uh, that share the very uh, same uh, symbols. And um, so so that I think uh, shed light on the visual culture of Chinese medicine and disease as well. Um, that is something that I think is very cool. Uh, the other thing that I think uh, is fascinating to study with is uh, the body charts. Uh, that is tied to this uh, song practice of inner alchemy, mm-hmm. song and yuan. Uh, and this really is a new phenomenon starting from the song. Even though inner alchemy uh, already uh, prospered in the tongue, but in the tongue it's more text-based, whereas after the song you see more and more new symbols invented uh, as part of the visual aids uh, for uh, these very uh, kind of like uh, arcane book um, so now this is um
1: I'll also mention for listeners as we move um through the chapters there's a really interesting point for anybody interested in uh, so kind of a more global history or a history of circulation, there's a point in which um, you show that images of the medical body and sort of body organs, uh, we might call them, possibly right. circulated into Persian texts. And so yeah. for, for listeners, you can find that on page 75. Um, there's also a really interesting set of discussions about uh, wooden models of inner organs that were right. stuffed inside uh, bronze models of the human body. So really, really interesting stuff. And also an interesting discussion of miniaturization Mm -hmm. um, as a phenomenon. So all really cool things in this chapter. So as we move to the next chapter, (laughs) um, chapter two looks at the shaping of Taoist cosmography. And it right. takes us through some of the major questions that we might have about that world, and you give us some of these questions. What were the components of the Taoist world from the time of its creation to the time when heaven, earth, heaven, earth, and hell were fully inhabited by lots of different specific divinities and beings? How were these places connected? What kinds of visual language? Did, what kinds of visual language did Taoists use to make sense of this cosmography? And how do these contributions relate to other aspects? of Chinese culture, and these are all questions that you posed for us at the beginning of that chapter. Um, oh. Can you talk a little bit about this? How do, um, in your study of this chapter, how are um, wh- how are images used in particular, and how does um, a, a kind of visual language come up um, as Taoists try to circumnavigate um, these processes and these questions? So what's the use, of, what, what kind of
0: surprising uses of images do we see in this chapter? Okay. Well, first I'd like to say why I write this chapter. It was actually not uh, in the original plan to write a chapter called Mapping the World. Uh, but the the question came when I wrote uh, chapter three. And, uh, and I realized that I have so many questions about the Taoist world that I have to address. And so I have to go back to uh, create a new chapter. And so that was actually quite uh, challenging to me. Uh, but... I think it's a very important question for Taoist adepts who actually embark on, on this mental journey uh, to everywhere in the universe. They got to know where to go and how to go correctly. And... Um, However, unlike the European counterpart um, in medieval period um, where we can see a very clear uh, map of the world, the so-called TO map, uh, placing uh, this world in relation to heaven or the paradise, Christian paradise. Um, the Taoist notion of cosmology is very vague and not at all a coherent system. I think that's number one to, to acknowledge. So any effort to kind of just nail down and say that, hey, this is it, uh, would be misleading. And I, in my book, I do not try to say that this is a coherent system. Uh, In terms of the visual materials that I use to address these questions of the Taoist world, um, I found it, uh, and actually that's a surprise, I found uh, it's very helpful to consult uh, the ritual space design uh, recorded in Taoist canon, and especially in those texts uh, that are dated to the Southern Song to the 13th century. Uh, the way that some of the Taoist ritual space is laid out actually echoes uh, the the macrocosm of the world. So this goes back to, uh, again, the concept of microcosm versus uh, macrocosm. Uh, I think one of the biggest surprise that I came up uh, uh, from this chapter is how important earthly paradise is in Taoist cosmology. And I see it as a contribution, as, as a unique contribution uh, in the Taoist side among uh, the different religions in medieval period. Um, this earthly paradise referred to a mixture of real places, uh, such as the five sacred mountains, uh, the wuyue, uh, or, uh, the imaginary places such as, uh, the member mountain. So it's very imaginative. Uh, this is also a concept that stimulates, uh, Chinese landscape painting and had a really profound impact in Chinese art. Um, so that's, that's kind of, um, uh, something that I think worth highlighting.
1: And um, among the kinds of images that you look at, or the kinds of materials that you look at in this chapter, we get um, discussions of mirrors and steelies and robes, it's very interesting. Now, one of the things that happens in this chapter, I want to ask you a little bit about because it's something that also happens in later chapters of the book, and this is something that you've alluded to, but perhaps we can take a moment to um, to talk about it because it seems very important, and that is the relationship between um, Taoist and Buddhist materials, and in particular, the, the kinds of cosmological images presented... In mm-hmm. texts that you're calling Taoist texts and those in Buddhist materials. Can you talk about, um, this relationship? Because the, the relationship between Taoist imagery and Buddhist imagery seems very important as something that you're talking about here and it's something that, uh, that recurs throughout the book.
0: Right. Um, well, uh, the main goal of this book is try to sort out what is the features of Taoist visual culture. But inevitably, I have to use Buddhist uh, materials as comparative sources in order to make a judgment of whether or not this is unique in Taoism. And and that is how the comparison uh, came across. Uh, I think that if uh, we accumulate uh, the scholarship of Taoist art, uh, maybe uh, we'll be ready to do a a real project, just, uh, compare Buddhist art and Taoist art face to face. Um, and, uh, coming back to this chapter, um, uh, regarding the, um, comparative, um, um, role of Buddhist cosmology, I think that what came out here is that, um, you know, uh, there is a sense of competition among different religions. So, um, uh, Buddhist cosmology is a more uh, well-defined concept in medieval China. Uh, this was not really it totally new that Chinese people uh, invented. It was something that was a shared across the Buddhist culture. Um, so I think that when the Taoists, uh, you know, uh, construct the, their worldview, uh, they very much make references to the Tao, uh, the Buddhist existing counterpart. And what is more interesting is that they want to go Beyond, you know, they want to surpass uh, the Buddhist counterpart. And one example is the uh, the layout of heavens. Um, the Taoist uh, heavens have multiple layers, uh, just like Buddhists. But then, uh, um, you know, uh, intentionally on top of the so-called three realms, sanjie, uh, that was within that defined the Buddhist kind of cosmology, Taoists say that. Well, we have more uh, layers on top. And uh, in addition to building up vertically uh daoist cosmology uh in comparison to the buddhist one also expand laterally and i think this lateral expansion is extremely interesting and uh, what i just mentioned about the idea of earthly paradise uh, fell into this category i think what is lateral implies what is more accessible to the human world because you are now on the same level uh, so it's a paradise that you can reach or you can reach uh, with, uh, you know, better ease, you know, uh, not like you have to go up to heaven. Thank you, Susan.
1: Now, in the next chapter, um, we focus on this concept and uh, set of images surrounding uh Something that's extraordinarily important and that you've already spoken a little bit about, and that's the idea of the true form. Now, Chapter 3 explores this genre um, of Taoist pictures known as true form charts, especially those associated with earthly paradises, as you just uh, were talking a little bit about. Can you talk a little bit about um, these charts? What were these true form charts, and in what way are they crucial for the work that you're doing in this chapter?
0: Yes, Um, I want to say that um, this is actually the most difficult chapter for me. Uh, It was very difficult uh, to compose, to make sense of the miscellaneous and fragmented sources that uh, I gather. Um, So the true form charts here refer to a specific category of Taoist symbol. Um, And I want to make a difference from uh, a more general reference or general use of the term true form uh, in my book and in the title of the book. Uh, In this chapter, I'm really talking about this specific type of images. Uh, But throughout the book, I use the true form uh, more freely to refer to this sort of um, underlying secret phenomena of the the nature. Um, So these true form charts that I refer to have some common grounds. Uh, First of all, they seem to all uh, refer to mountains, and that's very interesting. That actually speak about how important mountain is uh, in, in Taoist cosmology. And um, secondly, uh, in terms of the uh, composition, all these true form charts seem to be uh, in square form and uh, it has both text and image to a certain extent. So there is this interplay between text and image. And some of the texts are legible, whereas some are not uh, intentionally. Do I answer your question? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Now, one of the really
1: interesting things that you argue about these charts is that there was a particular way that um, the creators of these charts ensured the secret or esoteric transmission of the material that they, uh, that they were communicating. So can you talk a little bit about that? How did practitioners assure the secrecy and sort of secret esoteric transmission of this material?
0: This is a really, really fascinating, and um, I, you know, I just gradually realized that this is the kind of game rule that Taoism play, and I think that we are hitting upon a broader implication of Taoist visual culture that could be developed from this chapter, and that is what is the Taoist strategy of uh, knowledge transmission. I think one thing that is very different from Buddhism is that Taoism is very secret. Uh, it's very selective. Uh, you know, in many medieval uh, uh, texts that I study, uh, it, it ends with a warning saying that you cannot leak the information. If you leak the information, your ancestors of seven generations would be damned. You know, things like that. Uh, or say something like, uh, you know, if you cannot find a proper person to transmit, it better throw it away or hide it in the water or the mountain. And how rare this uh, transmission occur every 33 uh, years, every 100 years, every 500 years, things like that. Um, so that is strategy of secrecy is uh, incomprehensibility. I think that to make it incomprehensive, you know, to make the chart with uh, a mixture of illegible text and abstract forms, uh, in, kind of enhance the security code of this knowledge. So only the master who study with uh, another master would know how to look at this image, and and so the transmission. It's not enough just by looking at the image. There is a lot of other things to do that we don't know at this point. Uh, but I think that that is very important uh, uh, to note about these charts. Okay. Now,
1: the second part of the book takes us from this inner or esoteric realm of knowledge to an outer, exoteric realm of knowledge, keeping in mind, of course, as, as you also um remind us in the book that these two modes are not necessarily strictly dichotomous, and we have um, elements of the esoteric and exoteric that lead in and out of all of these chapters. So in these last three chapters, you look at the material culture and spatial design of Taoist ritual space, ritual performance, and finally liturgical paintings. Mm-hmm. Chapter four um, looks in particular at the materiality of Taoist ritual space and a really interesting set of discussions that looks at a lot of the um, objects, large and small, that go into creating and using Taoist ritual space. So, to talk about this chapter, could you for us um, talk a little bit about this space? What is the nature of the Taoist ritual space, or as you call it here, enclosure of the Tao? Mm -hmm. and how was this kind of space used by a practitioner and you mentioned that there's two forms of this space so could you say a little bit about that
0: sure um well um i talk about the um the meditation chamber the oratory uh as the first type of space and then i move on to the altar as the second type of space and i think it's more uh important to note that uh the altar space uh uh, went through, uh, a transformation, uh, throughout time. And so how it was constructed, uh, also vary, uh, in different time. And, uh, to acknowledge the, uh, the change of altar space, uh, it's important for us to, uh, consider, uh, the production of different kinds of Taoist art, including Taoist paintings. Because, for example, um, the Taoist altar, uh, starting from the 10th century, uh, seem to have a tendency to move indoors. And so uh, there is a, a, a kind of transformation from the so-called uh, centralized altar, which looked like a stage, higher uh, up like a mountain, uh, and often uh, placed outdoor, to a rim, like a, a, a rim structure, uh, and when things moved to the indoor, then uh, the objects used in the ritual were not uh, only placed at the altar table, but were pushed to the three walls, um, you know, eliting the entrance at that side. So uh, only the three walls. And that is when the paintings came to the scene in Taoist ritual. And so I think that the study of um, Taoist sacred space has something to do with uh the eval- development of Taoist uh, objects and paintings as well.
1: Great. Now, some of the objects that you talk about as being crucial to the use and um, organization of this space in this chapter include flags and banners. They include these ephemeral objects, um, like paper, spirit money, and written documents to the gods that um, bring up the issue of ephemerality of sources, as we were talking about before. But they also include um, smaller objects that may not have been visible to people who would have witnessed these rituals. Um, Now, these objects include two in particular that are really, really interesting. Um, Writing utensils, like a writing knife yeah and also mirrors could you say a little bit about uh, mirrors in particular in their use uh, in creating this kind of a space because this is um, images created on mirrors and with mirrors or sort of the the images um, related to the use of mirrors in this kind of practice are really fascinating Um, and so can you speak a little bit to that
0: Thank you. So first of all, I want to thank the anonymous uh, reviewer of my book. Actually, one reviewer suggested that I uh, uh, write a specific section on Taoist mirror, um, and although I, I did mention Taoist mirror here and there, and I really took his advice and uh, spent several months to uh, write these uh, 10 pages. Uh, so I appreciate that you asked. Um, Daoist mirror in the uh, ritual context was used mostly to, uh, <coughs> uh, for exorcism purpose. And that is to, uh, you know, uh, get rid of the demons. Uh, because the Daoists believe that, uh, the mirror has this magical power of, uh, revealing, revealing the true form. So now we are, you know, going back to this uh, key concept of mirror. And the other uh, interesting thing about Taoist mirror used in ritual practice is that uh, the design of the Taoist mirror seemed to be very different from the mainstream uh, Chinese bronze mirrors that we see, uh, uh, you know, in history. A major difference is that uh, Taoist mirror uh, design focused on talisman focus on writing. And this goes back to one of the modes that I highlighted at the beginning of the book, and we mentioned about briefly, and that is uniconic, and also the importance of writing uh, in Taoist ritual. I have to note, though, that uh, there is another kind of Taoist mirror used in uh, visualization practice, uh, and that was not the focus of this chapter. And I, I briefly mentioned that the design of that kind of mirror has to be just plain. Uh, so it, it's different from what we see in this book.
1: Thank you, Susan. Now, as we move to the next chapter, and this is sort of bringing us to the final chapters of the book, Chapter 5 discusses um, the yellow register purgation, which is a very particular salvation ritual, which was popular in Song, China. Can you speak a little bit about this? Why was this ritual so important and in what way um, does this particular ritual allow you to um, say some interesting things about images in um, Taoist ritual culture in this context? Because it because it does. I'll say as a reader, there's some really fascinating um, images that you give us here in the context of this ritual. So
0: can you talk a little bit about that? What is this ritual and in what way is it important here? Okay. Yeah. Well, this ritual, first of all, was uh, recorded in a lot of popular sources of that time, including Hong Mai's Yijianzhi, that a lot of historians use uh, when they talk about popular culture of the song. Uh, so that was my kind of uh, opening to the chapter. I took my reader to see uh, the jai or the yellow register purgation, through the eye of um, ordinary observers, just, you know, people who, who are, share the view of Hong Mai. And, uh, oftentimes what was recorded, uh, about Huang Luzhai in, uh, this type of sources focus on the dramatic encounter of the ghost and the, the living, the living and the dead. Uh, the kind of manifestation of the dead uh, and then the the living people uh, there are often the family member of the dead and they became really sad and very emotional. That is the kind of scenario we got from this type of source um, but I, I think that is not enough so I actually look into uh, the sources uh, in Taoist canon and as I mentioned the uh, several compilations of 13th century liturgical manuals uh, preserved in Taoist canons are very helpful. Uh, in these uh, liturgical sources, uh, they're very specific about the procedures, what you do as the step one and step two, step three. And uh, when you do step one, what kind of talismans do you need to use? Where do you need to turn? Where in the Daoist uh, ritual space do you go? things like that. So I'm combining these two kinds of textual sources, trying to reconstruct a scenario of the performance. Um, So um, I think in terms of the uh, ritual performance, a lot of religious scholars have studied this, uh, and Ed Davis in his book uh, have talked about this uh, in greater depth. Uh, But in summary, um, the... uh, Huang Lu or the Yellow Register uh, purgation aims at uh rescuing the soul uh that was suffering, that was cons- uh believed to be trapped uh in the underground prison. Uh, so what the priest would do is to go through a series of performance, starting from uh attacking on hell. Um uh, uh in Chinese it's called Pu Yu or breaking hell, and that is to get the gods some uh, permission to open the lock of the hell and to get uh, uh, get those uh, suffering souls out. Once uh, the souls were out, uh, they have to go through a series of purifi- uh, purifying process, bathing, and they have to be fed, feeding, feeding. Um, so that they could be uh, escorted away to the proper space. So after the attack on hell, the next procedure of this uh, Jai ritual is bathing and feeding. And we have to imagine that uh people performing this ritual are moving around in the ritual space. Uh there was no a single uh, you know, static space. Uh they are actually moving around. And um the Concluding right of this ritual is something very unique to Taoism, uh, something that you don't see in the contemporary Buddhist practice, and that is called Lien Yu, or salvation through refinement. This is a very beautiful concept. The goal is to forge new divinities out of the diseased source uh, by way of the ritual master's refinement of his own body. So there is a pairing of the outer ritual, what uh, ordinary people could see, uh, and uh, the inner ritual, something that was going through the visualization of the priest's mind uh, that I find very fascinating.
1: That's wonderful.
0: Thank you, Susan.
1: Now, as we come to the final chapter um, before the epilogue, Chapter six. Um, I just want to ask you uh, another question or two, just as we um, as we wrap up. Now, Chapter six looks at the dynamism, as you call it, of Taoist paintings, and it takes us through their processes of manufacture, their visual conventions, and their role in ritual. Um, mo- most of this chapter focuses on actually something that you brought up um, at the beginning of our conversation today, right. um, which is this um, Boston triptych. Yeah. yeah. The Three Officials of Heaven, Earth, and Water, that um, depicts three pictorial types that that are used to image mobile deities, which reflect animating processes that are visualized by a ritual master, as you say. And these three types are heavenly descent, earthly excursion, and ocean crossing. Okay. So this is just to sort of lay that out there so you don't have to go into that in in too much detail and I can ask you some questions. So one of the really interesting things about this chapter is that you explain for us kind of how a Taoist painter might typically have worked. Um, And this is really interesting for the purpose of production. So I'd I'd love to ask you to talk a little bit about that. If um, you were a Taoist painter creating one of these images, what would that creation
0: involve? Yeah. Right, um, I think that this is a fundamental question to our historians who uh, are looking at Taoist paintings with Taoist scholars. Um, you know, Taoist scholars are more preoccupied with the uh, the ritual and uh, religious questions, whereas uh, the Chin- the uh, art historians would think about how to relate Taoist paintings to the broader kind of pro- professional paintings. So uh, I think that uh, to start this chapter with the question of how um, Taoist paintings were created is very appropriate, uh, at least to me. And I think that one of the Uh, major implication uh, that I want to touch upon uh, by writing this is to pose the, to raise the tension between the so-called iconography and uh, generic figural type or visual conventions. I think that this has to be acknowledged before we really talk about what is the future of the iconography of this image. Um, and, um, so for, a, a, a painter making Taoist paintings, um, he has to go through a series of procedures, uh, including, um, uh, collecting samples, collecting visual types, you know, um, you know, to kind of draft uh, the composition and he has to look for inspiration and uh, not only from the sketchbook, the professional sketchbook, but also from the earlier work of art. Um, and I think one uh, very uh, eccentric story uh, that I've read uh, is this uh, 10th century artist, Sun Zhiwei. In order to paint uh, a ghost, uh, he actually uh, go to a, uh, uh, a spirit medium, uh Ling Mei, which is often a woman, uh in Chinese society. And uh this uh spirit medium uh was able to summon a ghost from the underworld and to ask him what do you see there. Um and uh Sun Chi the painter's major question is how do you differ uh God from ghost or demon from go uh, from God and and so this uh these uh, ghosts uh, summoned from the underground say that uh, gods uh, often look like a king. You know, it's magnificent, it's handsome, whereas uh, ghosts uh, have this deformed shape, uh, things like that. Um, as much as it's very cliché, I, I think that it pointed out to uh, the kind of unusual process uh, a painter is challenged to go through uh, in the making of religious painting like this.
1: Well, thank you so much, Susan. And I can, um, just to mention for listeners as well as, as we wrap up, there's also a really wonderful account in this chapter of the way adept, an adept might have actually used um, this uh, a painting like the Boston Triptych as an element in self-cultivation. And you argue that these triptychs were essentially portable Taoist altars. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, it's very, very interesting material. And it's a beautiful, gorgeous book. So as we come to the close of our discussion, Susan, of this beautiful, gorgeous, wonderful book, uh, there's so much in here that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich book, and it's just a testament to what an amazing contribution it is. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to make sure to mention for listeners, especially perhaps for listeners who may not yet have had
0: a chance to read the book? Well, I think that we touch upon um you know uh, the most important key issues and uh for a reader to digest I would encourage everyone to go to the book uh that would give uh all these questions more uh, respect for answer. Uh I think that uh I can talk a little bit about the the overall goal and uh what we can expect next uh from this book. Uh and I I think that um I hope that this book will encourage more uh, study that breaks through the categories of art or categories of knowledge uh, and to study religious visual culture as a whole. And to do this, uh, we of course need cooperation. We need to share our resources. We need to continue having conversations uh, between art historians and uh, people working on texts and religious materials. Um, and I think it's, you know, uh, I hope that this will encourage, uh, more scholars to do, uh, to ask broader questions rather than just focus on case studies.
1: Wonderful. Well, so now that we've got this completely wonderful, gorgeous book um, that we will um, that I'm sure is going to be a reference work for many, 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 many years to come. What's next for you? What project is currently inspiring you right now?
0: All right. So you know, the book just published. So I was still in the aftermath,
1: <laughs> right? The afterglow, <laughs> right, the
0: right? Postpartum. Um, but, I, I do. I do have some ideas of my um, next two projects. Um, the the two bookland projects. Uh, one deal with Daoist issue of text and image, and I think I want to tackle this issue of image text, uh, and even perhaps. Uh, bring it to a theoretical level. And uh, to do so, I want to continue um, studying uh, the various symbols in uh, Taoist canon. What I have presented uh, to my readers in the book is just uh, a piece of the iceberg of the whole thing. So this may take a while, but I think it's worthwhile to pursue. Um, The second project, I want to shift um, from Taoism to Buddhist side. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, this is something that I, uh, have been doing, uh, for a while. And it, uh, it focused on the early Buddhist illustrated prints. So it talked about the book culture. It talked about, uh, material religion, how Buddhism used uh, prints in particular, uh, to spread knowledge. And, uh, in this uh project I'm most interested uh in uh addressing the cross cultural issues because uh from the tenth to thirteenth century we do have a wonderful collection, a very rich body of uh existing uh Buddhist prints, uh not only from Song China, but also from the Liao, uh from the Jin and especially from the Xia uh kingdom. Uh, So I want to use these materials to make comparison. Uh, Two main questions that I plan to investigate uh, in this uh, project concerns how visual motifs undergo change and transformation, both when transposed from one media to another and when uh, from one place to the other. So that's about the, you know, basic idea. Well, that's, those
1: both sound like great projects, Susan. So, best of luck, um, oh, best of luck with that work. Congratulations again yeah. on this really wonderful book, and thank you so much for making the time to talk today.
0: Thank you so much for the interview, and thank you for your interest in the book.
1: You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us today, and I'll look forward to seeing you next time.